Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Chewing the Gristle podcast with me, your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, the gristle man, if you will. We have extemporaneous conversations with musical friends from all genres, walks of life, and nostril circumferences. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Today on Chewing the Gristle, another one of my best musical buddies, Roscoe Beck, bass guitar player extraordinaire. You've heard him with everyone, his musical director, Leonard Cohen, Robin Ford in the Blue Line, Eric Johnson, Dixie Chicks, just a soulful bass player, very well suited to either doing blistering technical savagery or just laying down a simple groove. He's one of my all-time faves. Roscoe Beck, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, this one's going to be a lot of fun. My buddy Roscoe Beck on the line from beautiful Austin, Texas. 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 How do you Roscoe say Roscoe and I go back a long way. We've shared many glorious musical moments, many humorous human moments as well. <laughs> and uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk with Roscoe about his uh, quite an awesome career of playing a variety of different styles of music at an extraordinarily high level of both musicality and let's just be honest, commercial success. There's nothing wrong. Occasionally, <laughs> occasionally those, those two things coincide. <laughs> Only by accident. <laughs> so currently uh, he's been back with his old compatriot, uh, Eric Johnson with another compatriot, Tom Breckline. Uh, yes. Of course, those two were the rhythm section in the notorious Robin Ford and the Blue Line. And uh, so tell us, just how's that going? So obviously with COVID, it's on a little bit of a hiatus, but hopefully once that subsides or when it subsides, if the earth is still around, you will probably continue to do this for some time in the future, I would imagine. Yes. Well, I think, uh, I think actually probably uh, the Eric Johnson group, we were probably single-handedly responsible for for (laughs) COVID-19. because we <laughs> we started the uh, 2020 tour. Actually, uh, we left Austin on New Year's Day. Aha! Uh-huh. And our first show was uh, January 3rd. I should mention also that uh, the group this time around was a quartet containing right. not only Tom Breckline, but a fabulous uh, guitar player uh, here from Austin. Yeah, Dave Scher. He's great. Dave Scher. Yeah. Wonderful player. Yes, indeed. And, uh, uh, you know, I've been involved in many good groups with Eric over the years, but I think overall, uh, this band was, was my favorite. Excellent. Um, we had some great camaraderie going, uh, you know, musical and otherwise. Uh, it was really working. And uh, so our first show was uh, January 3rd. I believe it was Salt Lake City. But after that, I, I feel like, yeah, we must have been spreading it because we went to Washington State first. Oh. We, we started up there. Uh, I don't think there were any known cases when we were there, but soon after we left, well, what can I say? Lord! Worked our way down to California and uh, Colorado, uh, Texas. Basically, we did the the western half of the U.S., uh, through January, uh, and played uh, played that. Uh, ended up in Austin February first. Took a small break, and then uh, started doing the East Coast. And uh, you know, played New York City. When we played New York City, there was one case. Right. Soon, a- soon after we left, all hell broke loose. So I'm connecting the dots here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. We really didn't mean to do it. Eric Johnson, so, the pestilence tour. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to admit it. It did seem like, you know, after we left places, uh, they just exploded. Um, but I guess, you know, coincidentally that. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to say it's coincidence. <laughs> happening all over the country. But um, uh, we although can- in this world of strange conspiracy theories, 
Anything is possible. I know I've just launched something I'm going to be really sorry for. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you first meet Eric? Um, I met Eric when we were both 20. Uh, we're the same age. So about 10 years ago. Yes. <laughs> yes, about that. Yeah, check, check the records. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, uh, Eric Johnson, Stevie Ray, myself, uh, all the same age. All born Crazy. in, I better not say. Um, <laughs> At some point, 10 years ago. Yes, yes, born. 10 years ago, plus a few. Yes. Um, but yes, um, I had just... Uh, completed two years at uh, what was then called North Texas State University. Oh, yes. You, yep. uh, a famous uh, music school. Indeed. Uh, where uh, In Denton, I met, Texas. I met in Denton, Texas, where I met many musicians who were uh, very inspirational. Uh, Lyle Mays was a freshman when I was a freshman there. Yeah. His his roommate, his dorm roommate, was a gentleman named Pat Coyle, who uh, I ended up in a band with at school. And Pat now works with Michael McDonald. And later on, when I went out to L.A. and and uh, joined the Toshiko Akiyoshi Lu Tobacco and Big Band, please say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I ran into another North Texas friend, Bob Shepard. So, but uh, anyway, I I did uh, two years at the famous NTSU, and um, and had a hankering to go back to Austin, where I had finished high school. So uh, I came back to Austin, and um, I had a very dear friend, uh, a fabulous guitar player that no one knows about, named Fred Walter, the best kept secret in Texas. Still is. <laughs> but uh, Fred, uh, despite being a fabulous guitar player in almost any style you could imagine, I mean, played the only person I've ever met who could really play like Wes Montgomery, not just play octaves or right. chords, but I mean, he had that kind of feel and that kind of fluidity. Amazing player. Anyway, uh, and Fred was one of my great teachers, actually. But um, so when I came back from North Texas, I looked up Fred and I said, Fred, what's happening in Austin? And he told me a couple of things. He said, well, Jimmy Vaughn uh, has a new band because um, the band I had seen him with when I was in high school was a band called Storm. OK. Uh, that had Doyle Bramhall Sr. on drums, among others. Um, but he said, well, Jimmy's got a new band. Uh, it's called Fabulous Thunderbirds. And I was like, oh, okay, I got to check that out. And, uh, and he said, and um, have you heard Jimmy's little brother? And I said, no, I, didn't, I really didn't even know he had a brother. And he said, well, little Stevie is an amazing player. He said, he said you, you got to check him out. And I said, done, I will check that out. And he said, and then there's Eric Johnson. And he's got a band called the Electromagnets, and and uh, I think you'd really like them. So I made it my mission to to hear all three of those bands uh, as soon as possible. And uh, so I went uh, down to Sixth Street in Austin to hear the Electromagnets, and they were playing uh, a club on Sixth Street, which was a former porno theater called the Sun Theater. <laughs> A place of sin. <laughs> a place of sin, indeed. Uh, and uh, and was knocked out by the electromagnets, uh, which, of course, was Eric Johnson, Steve Barber, Kyle Brock on bass, uh, oh, yeah. Bill, Bill Maddox on drums. Loved what I was hearing, loved the group, and it, but it was a small place and, and easy to meet. And uh, so I met Eric after their set. Someone... Uh, who knew both of us introduced us and, and told Eric, he said, well, this is Roscoe Beck. And um, he just came here from North Texas state. And that kind of interested Eric, I think just, just that it's like, Oh, a schooled musician. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, you know, and he, he said, well, we should uh, get together sometime. And uh, fairly shortly after that, we did. Um, the electromagnets, as it turns out, were kind of in their last days. And Eric was looking to break out on his own. 
and uh, form a trio. And so uh, when he decided it was time to do that, he, he gave me a call. And uh, the rest, as I say, is history. Indeed. Well, you and, know, one, uh, of the, one of the most... To embellish on that story, of course, yes, I, I, I did uh, go out to hear the other bands and, and right. Jimmy Vaughn. And then um, I ended up at a club on a... There was a Sunday jam session at a place which was then called the One Night, Night with a K, as in mm-hmm. Knights of Old. Behold. <laughs> Behold. Behold. Oh. Warriors. <laughs> um, sorry for copying your thing. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's very infectious. Those of you who know Greg Cock know what I'm talking about. Um, but anyway, yes, I ended up at this uh, club called The One Night, which is still in existence now under the name of Stubbs, Stubbs Barbecue. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I went to this Sunday jam session and, um, it was just one of those things where you'd get called up on stage, you know, you'd let them know you were there and they'd call you up and they called Stevie and I up at the same time. And of course, Fred had told me about him. So, you know, so I knew about him. He didn't know about me. Um, but we took the stage together. I, I wish I could remember who else was playing. I really can't, but I do remember that we played, uh, a blues in A minor. Uh-huh. Uh, some kind of blues in A minor was the first thing we played together. And we hit it off right away. You know, just hit it off. It was like, let's, let's, let's do more. And, uh, and over the years, we, we maintained that friendship. Uh, I never joined his band dis- despite his asking, which of course seems uh, like some kind of sin, of course. Um, because I, I, think that, it, I think it turned out all right for you, though, Roscoe. It turned out all right, you know, but uh, we have our regrets in life. And, yeah. um, you know, there were there were many opportunities to actually work in a band with them. And, and at least one or two instances where he called me up and, and said, hey, I've, I've got a little recording session. And, you know, it wasn't at any big studio or anything. It might have been at a four track facility or an eight track facility. It was, you know, we're talking 1974. Okay. A long time ago. Um, but, um, yeah, on a couple of occasions, I remember him calling me, Hey, can you come over, uh, do this? And for some reason or another, I, I couldn't, uh, Uh, yes. uh, You know, so, do have certain regrets, but we had a close friendship. We, we connected on a lot of levels. Uh, we jammed with each other a lot. Um, he would come later on. I formed a band called passenger. Yes. I was going to ask you about that. Uh, which, which was primarily a jazz band and Stevie, as you know, uh, had an affinity for, for jazz as well. Mm -hmm. And he loved to come, uh, sit in with passenger and, Usually play the same couple of songs. Right. <laughs> uh, you yeah. like to play Sugar, right? <laughs> sugar was Sugar was one of them for sure. Yeah, and uh, you know, in a Kenny Burrell styled blues, you know that sort of thing. Right. Um, but I had been into blues from an early age through the influence of an older brother uh, who turned me on to Chicago blues, Texas blues. Uh, at the tender age of probably about 12, something like that. So I had a great affinity for blues as well. So as often as I could, I would go sit in with him and get, get my blues fix. Yes. And that was pretty easy to do at that time because, uh, well, a little later on, I had a steady uh, gig at a hotel uh, five nights a week. And uh, it ran until about midnight. Stevie at that time had a had a gig at a club in downtown Austin called After Hours, um, and his gig went from midnight till four in the morning. Jesus! Uh, so <laughs> I would I would finish my gig and uh, show up at After Hours, still wearing my three piece suit and tie, and uh, would usually get a comment from Stevie something like, "You're looking real clean." uh but many enjoyable evenings sitting with sitting in with him at uh at the after hours which 
uh, group then, I think was called, uh, not trouble, double trouble, maybe triple threat review, or maybe just going under his own name at that time. But, uh, yeah, we were close for many years. I spoke with him on the phone for probably an hour, uh, not long before he passed. Oh, that's too bad. That was a sad time, but. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, tell us about Passenger, and I, and I love the story about uh, uh, Jaco Pistorius coming in. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, uh, yes. That's a classic tale. <laughs> well, Jaco was a. Uh, Someone I had heard about, this was pre-Passenger, so I guess we'll put Passenger aside for a minute and talk Jocko. Um, yes, uh, beings that I was really kind of, you know, North Texas, I, I, I went there to get an education, really, a musical education. My high school year in Austin uh, was a pivotal year, um, because I met a gentleman named James Polk, who is a, a keyboard player uh, in, in those days, primarily a B3 organ player, who led a, uh, a jazz trio on the east side, kind of Larry Young styled, little with a little bit of Jimmy Smith or Groove Holmes thrown in yeah. for good measure. But Polk was the real thing. And uh, up to that point, I had heard a lot of really amazing, you know, good classic jazz records. But I had never had the club experience. I had never walked into, oh, that's not quite true. But uh, rarely had uh, heard real live jazz in a club. And uh, when I when I walked in and, and heard that uh, jazz trio for the first time, B3 organ just pumping, um, I knew I had some things to learn. And uh, that's why I wanted to uh, go to North Texas State and, and, ah. and learn all I could about playing jazz. So when I came back to Austin, still, while in love with blues and, and other forms of music, still, jazz was the real challenge, you know, harmonically, rhythmically, all kinds of ways. So I tended towards gigs that, while not being all that hip, um, uh, uh, paid the bills and gave me an opportunity to learn jazz standards. Got it. So, you know, I ended up with hotel gigs where we could actually play jazz and, and club gigs where, that allowed jazz. So uh, around 1976, I'm going to say, five or six, I was working with a gentleman uh, in a jazz trio uh, named Bobby Doyle, another great musician who people never got the opportunity to hear about, but a fine keyboard player and an amazing singer um, who knew every jazz standard in the world, not only could play them, but sing them, you know, the lyrics. So learned a lot from that guy. Um, Bobby Doyle had briefly, uh, just prior to my meeting him, he had been hired to replace David Clayton Thomas in Blood, ah. Sweat, and Tears. Because David Clayton Thomas had left Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Bobby was hired as the, uh, as the lead vocalist and keyboard player. Um, which impressed me, which is why I wanted to work with him. Um, so uh, I ended up working with him. And uh, at some point, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears passed through Austin. Bobby was no longer with him. I, I think he had been fired due to alcohol. But um, they, were, they were still in contact. <clears throat> so Blood, Sweat, and Tears came through town and called Bobby up and said, hey, would you like to come see the show? And Bobby said, yeah, sure. Can I bring my bass player? And they said, oh, yes, bring your bass player. Um, and what I didn't know, and unfortunately didn't find out that evening, was blood, sweat, and tears. Bobby Columbia had kind of discovered Jocko in, in uh, uh -huh. and had hired uh, Jocko briefly in blood, sweat, and tears. And so uh, they were kind of, you know, taunting Bobby, saying, yes, bring your bass player. 
so I, I, <laughs> I went to Bobby's to, to pick him up. And uh, <laughs> that evening, all he wanted to do was drink beer and play dominoes. And uh, unfortunately, that's what we ended up doing. Uh, the next day, just about every musician I know in Austin made contact with me and said, Roscoe, oh, man. You know, those who saw Blood, Sweat, and Tears saw Jocko with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. But after that, Jocko just hit the town and hit the clubs and started sitting in with, you know, whoever was playing. So a lot of my friends saw Jocko uh, that night, and everybody was just raving. I mean, the town was just a buzz about this guy, Jocko. Um who was playing with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and they said, oh, he has an album coming out. They said, you just won't believe the stuff this guy was doing. We had never heard anything like it. And I heard so much about it that, like, uh, and and this record that was coming out that I, I was just waiting for it to come out, you know, and I found out what the release date was, and I bought it on the day it came out. It hit my turntable, and it never came off. Um... Three days later, after the record was released, um, by then, Jocko had just joined Weather Report uh, and came through Austin with Weather Report for the first time, um, which um, I don't think I even knew because I can't, honest to God, can't remember if I went to the concert. I, I don't think I did. But... I was working my gig with Bobby Doyle, my trio gig, and uh, we played three sets a night, kind of long sets, and we had just finished the first set. And uh, during the break, my friend Fred Walter, who I just mentioned, uh, came up to me and he said, Roscoe, he said, uh, Jaco Pastorius is outside. Uh, he's, at, he's at the door and they won't let him in. He doesn't have the cover. And and I just went, oh, damn. And I headed to the door. And I got halfway there, and I remembered that the cover was a dollar. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I kind of went, dope. You've been had. And I turned around. I went back to Fred. I, I said, that was a good one, man. You had me going. I was, <laughs> I was halfway to the door. And he said, no, man, Jocko's at the door. And I said, yeah, he doesn't have a dollar. You know, give me a break. And Fred said, turn around. And I turned around, and he was probably four inches from my face. (laughs) (laughs) And he looked exactly like he did on that record cover, except for he was wearing glasses. Ah. But literally four inches from my face, right in my face. Bizarro. And um, I was stunned. Um, And I hadn't, well, I had heard the record. Um, So who wouldn't be? Uh, And almost speechless. And uh, he stood there and I went, oh, uh, you want to play? Only thing I could think of. (laughs) And he said, sure. Um, I owned three basses at that time. I had an upright bass and two Fender precision basses, uh, stock 70s precision basses. One was fretted, and the other had a plain fretless neck. Okay. Like they made back in the day, you know, no lines on it. Right. Rosewood board. Um, so Jocko said, yeah, sure. He went up, took the stage. I waited to see him pick up the fretless. Because uh, I only had the fenders on stage. Right. Uh, he picked up the fretted, played the whole set, amazing, on a on a P bass, just just amazing. I I just sat at the bar just watching, you know, my new hero and my last hero, I must say too. Really, no heroes after Jocko, but amazing, amazing. Uh, so he finished his set. He came and sat down next to me at the bar. I think we were both drinking a Coke. He didn't drink. 
in those days or do anything when I met him. Um, and uh, he said, hey, man, can I play drums next set? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, the cat was amazing. I, I was sure he'd probably be a great drummer, too. Right. And he said, OK, let's see what you can do. I was like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) but he finished the evening. Uh, We played out the evening. Uh, He he on drums and and me on bass. And and needless to say, it it was a gas. It was a gas. And uh, I invited him over to my crib, you know, which in those days was an apartment, two bedroom apartment. Had a girlfriend at the time. She was asleep. I had to go wake her up. Because she had heard nothing for the past three days. Ah. The past story is spinning. Right. I had to wake her up. You know, it's like. You never believe who's hey, here. Get up. Jocko's here. And she's like, huh? And, uh, and we hung out till five in the morning uh, drinking tea. Um, no drink, no drugs. Just hanging, talking music. Um. I have to admit that I thought he was a little strange. Um, I mean, which, you know, I had heard his record and I just played with him. So I knew he was brilliant. I knew, I knew he was a level beyond. Um, so when I would ask him questions, I would get answers, which didn't always immediately make sense to me. Um, so I, I had never met anyone like him. Uh, really, you know, kind of very different. Obviously high intellect, but uh, different. And, uh, you know, I asked him, did he play upright bass? Because I had one sitting in the corner. And he said, oh, I had one at one time, you know, but Florida, it's, it's so humid, it just fell apart. You know? Ah, yeah, yeah. And uh, asked him the questions you'd expect I would ask him. It's like, sure. You know, uh, you know, how do you get that sound? And he said, well, I play a jazz bass, you know, he said, uh, he said, man, you should just put a bridge pickup on, on, on your bass. He said, he said, uh, he said, you can't really play as fast on a P bass. You know, when you're playing there in the middle position over that pickup, he said, you gotta play down closer to the bridge where the tension is greater and the resistance is, is is greater the string isn't as floppy there and and that's where your harmonics will really sound you know through the through the bridge pickup aha um and uh you know and and uh and i asked him of course why he didn't pick up my fretless you know i said how come you didn't play my fretless no lines man (laughs) and i was kind of like well, I don't need lines, you know. It's like I play the upright, I I play the fretless, and like he picked up my bass and said, yeah, can you play this? <laughs> <laughs> so after that initial time hanging out with them in, in Austin, did you hang out with them after that, or what were your experiences with him after, after that, Jocko, that is? <clears throat> well, yeah, needless to say, uh, he left town. I, I took my fretted P bass over to my luthier. We pulled the frets. We put a bridge pickup on it. Um, and uh, I still have that bass. Uh, uh-huh. So I still have the, the bass that Jocko played on that night as a fretted is, is now my fretless, oh, one of them. Um, so major influence obviously. And, and yes, we met many times after that, uh, you know, anytime weather report was playing in the same town where I was, I would go to hear them, uh, whether that was Austin or LA or wherever, uh, any chance to hear weather report I took. Right. Um, also around that time, and this is an interesting connection. Um, through, a, a, a series of, good for, uh, fortunate accidents, I guess you'd have to say. Um, I got a call uh, one day from Joni Mitchell's producer, a man named Henry Louie. I was just still here in Austin, Texas. My phone rang. 
And I picked it up and a voice said, hi, this is uh, Roscoe. This is Henry Louis. Uh, I'm Joni Mitchell's producer. And I went, I know who you are. I, I know who you are. And he had gotten a, a cassette tape of Passenger playing our original material on which, of course, I played a lot of fretless bass. Um, to large extent, I must admit, emulating my hero. Sure. Um, Jocko, of course, was making records with Joni Mitchell. Uh, Henry was looking for a band for Joni Mitchell, uh, a touring band. And he had the idea to hook up Passenger with Joni Mitchell. Uh, and having heard Passenger, he thought we fit the bill, especially since I worked on fretless bass so much. Um, so uh, long and short of it is Henry said, you guys come to L.A., I'll introduce you to Joni, and we'll see what happens. Can't make you any guarantees, don't have anything to offer, but you come, we'll meet, we'll see what happens. So we packed it up, packed up five cars in a van, all our equipment, whole band went out to L.A., and uh, started hanging out with uh, Henry Louie at A&M Studios, where Joni Mitchell was making the Mingus album. Ah. Uh, so... And, and there at A&M, I, I did meet Jocko again, uh, who by now was behaving very differently. Um, ah, yeah. Um, the drink and the drugs had, had really come into the picture. Uh, nonetheless, he was still playing brilliantly and, and still someone I took every opportunity to hang out with that I, that I could. And, and there were, there were other opportunities to, to hang also, uh, the last one being the last time I saw him actually was in Munich one day. So ah. I could go on about that, but he, uh, I was on, by then I was on tour with Leonard Cohen. He was still touring with uh, weather report. They were touring the night passage album, but he was complaining that the album actually for some reason hadn't been released and they were doing the night passage tour and posters had, you know, the picture of the album on it, but the album wasn't out. So it was kind of a strange thing. They were doing a Night Passage tour without the Night Passage album out. And he was unhappy about that. But he came to my hotel room, played me the entire Night Passage album and an album he was working on, uh, which uh, was his second album, Word of Mouth. And he, so he played me both of those albums in their entirety, um, though neither one was out yet. So that was... That was a thrill. That was the last time I saw him. But just to back up a little, I, I realized how important Jocko was in my career, not only from the things I learned from him, um, musically, technically, about my bass, um, but in a large part, everything that came about for me after that was a result of that ah. um, because really Henry Louis made that phone call because I played fretless bass and it sounded like Jocko. Right. And he knew Joni couldn't keep Jocko and Pat Metheny and, and all the, you know, a class musicians she was working with. <clears throat> and he was, he was looking for a band for Joni. Um, that turned out not to be what Joni wanted. She, you know, she wanted the guy she was already working with. And, right. And she got him, you know, and they did the shadows and light thing. Right. Um, so instead, Henry hooked me up with Leonard Cohen because uh, he was producing not only Joni's uh, Mingus album, but at the same time, he was producing a Leonard Cohen record that would end up being called Recent Songs. And Leonard was about halfway through his record. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Henry brought me in for a session, just me at first. 
And, uh, you know, and I brought my fretless course and, and Leonard and I played a song duet and, uh, right there on the spot and recorded it. And Leonard liked it and Henry liked it. And, and he said, let's, let's do more. And, uh, Leonard said, uh, let's do this again. And Henry said, well, he has a whole band, you know. <laughs> and Leonard said, well, next time bring them all. So at that point, Passenger joined Leonard Cohen and, and finished up the album in 1979. Then we did his European tour of 1979, where I, where I met Jennifer Warrens, uh, which sp- sp- uh, sprung a collaboration, which, uh, which goes on to this day. Right. And of course, with Leonard Cohen, I, I worked with him right up until his very last concert in December 2013. Right. So, in a sense, I have Jocko to thank for a lot of what happened afterwards. Right. And, uh, you know, I think I got over mimicking him at, at some point, certainly. For sure. Um, and let other elements of my former life creep back in. Uh, my affinity for blues, my love of the upright bass. Um. But I, I realize, without having met that person, or without him having existed, right, my entire life from that point out would have been something completely different. Who, who knows? Exactly, a different course. Yes. So, uh, Jocko, good God, what a what a guy, what a what a personality. Uh, complex as they come. Right. Uh, without a doubt, and and a sad, sad ending to the story. Of course, as as everyone knows, I I cried like I've never cried the day he died, uh, um, and I realized I had no more heroes. There could never be another hero. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> present company excluded. <laughs> What's interesting is is that as as much as you know, obviously uh, you have this jazz aspect to your playing, and of course there's the blues thing, but you can also rock, and that is the thing that is a very very rare combination. I mean, and I think maybe a lot of that is from you probably agree that you you started off on guitar as a young rocker. Yes, indeed. Uh, but that's, I mean, this is the thing I, you know, I describe to people quite a bit is that, you know, if you do music that's multifaceted, it has all these different aspects of, of roots music involved. The frustration is that a lot of times you get somebody who has the harmonic knowledge that they can dip their toe into jazz world. Uh, but then when it comes to playing blues, maybe they're a little too busy or maybe they can play blues enough, but when it comes to rock, they just don't understand the letting go and just going, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you can do all those things. And it's just, you know, as a guitar player's bass player, you're, you're you know, at the top of the list. I mean, of oh, course, all you. the other stuff you do. But uh, which, which leads to an interesting story, so much so that you were actually on the short list uh, to to uh, fulfill the position of one Bill Wyman in the Rolling Stones. Another awesome story, if I may be so bold as to ask it. Indeed. Well, you know, I mean, we're all Beatle babies, aren't we, in, in a way? Right. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think it would have made much difference if I were born blind because... From a very early age, I saw the world through my ears. Um, my earliest memories are are sonic. Um, you know, the music I was hearing around me, whether it was my father's Benny Goodman records, which I think had a lot to do with my ability to play jazz later on, just that feel. The first time I tried to walk bass, I found I could already do it just because right. I heard so much. Right. Um, but uh, I was just absorbing from the earliest ages. I mean, I can remember seeing and hearing Elvis Presley on black and white TV. Um, and honestly, I liked everything I heard. It didn't matter. Right. Um, you know, it didn't matter if it was the Four Seasons singing Sherry or 
you know, our time will come or theme from a summer place or Chuck Berry. Uh, it didn't matter. I liked it all. I just, you know, I had a little transistor radio, which was just glued to my ear and, and at night, you know, roped to my <laughs> in post. Um, so music was pretty much, pretty much everything for, from an early age, but of course the Beatles changed everything. Right. Let's, let's face it. Um, as soon as they hit, you know, I was a Beatle baby, but I did have the advantage of having a very hip older brother, um, six years older, Tom, uh, very hip. He was deep into the folk scene of the early 60s, the, the really good stuff, um, you know, not just the stuff everybody knew, but he had a deep record collection. From his folk period, he went into a blues period, first kind of folk blues, kind of country blues. Right. And from that, he, he discovered Chicago blues and Texas blues and electric blues. Right. And, and Tom didn't really get the Beatles. Um, he, he was a folky. He was a purist. He was a folky and moved into blues. Didn't get the Beatles. Didn't, didn't quite join the 60s movement, but, but was examining the real authentic forms of music, you know, folk music, blues, from blues suddenly it went into jazz. After he went to college one weekend, he came home with Kind of Blue, Bags Meets West, uh, West Montgomery Meets Milt Jackson, uh, Blue Train. Right. Um, you know, uh, and, and some current records. Uh, Gary Burton Quartet with Larry Coriel. And, uh, and yeah. got my first look at a young guy with long hair playing a Super 4. Right. in Super 400, and I went, God, that is the coolest looking thing I've ever seen, man. He's like wearing shades, and he's got long hair, and he's playing this big body Gibson, right. and he's playing jazz and this avant-garde music, uh, the album Duster by Gary Burke. Great, great record. Uh, Chico Hamilton record that had Larry Coriel on it, and I kind of realized, oh, you can... You can be young and cool and play jazz, you know. Right. But, uh, yeah, to, you know, to get back what you were saying about rock music, um, I guess I, at some point, I realized through the influence of my, my brother what was, what really made these forms of music work for me were, you had to understand them on, on a deeper level, Um you know, what's always bugged me about blues bands is that they don't, they don't know the history. Right. You know, uh, like Jimmy Vaughn and, and Stevie did. You know, I've never heard Jimmy Vaughn play a note that wasn't authentic. Right. I mean, he understands blues in, in a way that, that few people do. Um, just totally authentic. Um, and, you know, to me, that just made so much sense. And, and again, my friend Fred Walter, I heard Fred played, you know, in jazz situations. And honest to God, and this is the only person I could say that about, I might as well have been listening to Wes Montgomery. Uh, that's crazy. The, the way he improvised octaves and chord solos and single line stuff with ease and fluidity. I had never heard anybody play like that. And then I went out and I heard Fred play in a two guitar rock band on the campus of the University of Texas. And I mean, this was just flat out rock. Right. Uh, it was a band called two, you know, with two guitar harmony solos and stuff and and fred just totally you no longer heard any jazz influence or any right. of his hot licks or anything he played rock straight up and then i've heard and then i heard him on blues gigs and he might as well have been jimmy vaughn or guitar slim or or buddy guy right. because 
there were no other elements. It was like the real deal. And then Fred joined the country band <laughs> and made one record with a, an artist named Milton Carroll on, on CBS. It's the only record Fred ever made. And, uh, and I went out and hear him, heard him, and then he's doing all these steel guitar bends on, on the guitar. And, um, you know, I realized from hearing guys like Fred and, and Jimmy Vaughn and James Polk that the authenticity of what you're doing matters so much. Right. Whatever you're doing. Um, and as I was saying, you know, what I has always turned me off about blues bands is that, you know, a guy learns a couple of rock licks and, and thinks he can play blues. Right. It's not what it's, it's not what it's about, you know, or a rock guitar player learns a couple of jazz runs and and thinks he can play jazz. Right. There's, there's depth and, and history in all of these forms of music. And, um, I may be too much of a purist. Um, and certainly I've played in bands that, that tried to stretch boundaries. I mean, Robin Ford and the Blue Line, we thought of ourselves as a blues band. But of course, we didn't play straight up blues like the fabulous Thunderbirds. Um, uh, You know, by then, I guess, you know, we were ready to let fly and let the influences come out, you know, because there was jazz influences and there was rock influences. You know, there was... Well, there comes a time where it's it's all been done. You know what I mean? And, and yes, that uh, that can converse in the language of what's been, and they're respectful of that, and that's cool. And then there's the other thing I'm saying, man. There's all the stuff that's been out there. It's all been done a million different ways. Let's throw it in the pot. Be reverent to what has been. Yes. And then, but serve up a new souffle and throw it on the wall and feast. As the case. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. But but that's but I think, you know, your uh, ethos, if you will, about that comes through in your playing with your ability to be able to wear those different shoes and have it really be right. Because, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's just <laughs> there's just so much nougat in Roots music that a lot of people overlook. They, do, they, yeah. they, see, they see the structure, but they don't see what keeps the structure integral you know what i mean and as a result if you ask a guy who maybe is more of a jazz individual that prides himself that way they think well rock is this oh i've played in a rock band back in the day and then you do some kind of you know down and dirty greasy rock tune and it just it sounds as square as the day is long so um but yeah to your point that's what that's um that's what makes the mighty roscoe back (laughs) you wrote a song called can't get there from here Yes. And I'm just going to use that line to say you can't get you can't get there without having been there. Right. Uh, You know, all of these forms of music we're talking about, there's great depth within and history. And if you don't dig deep, well, you're doing yourself a disservice for one. because you'll you'll never really understand the profundity right. of, of of the music, and um, if you don't understand it, you can't really play it. Um, you can only play some facsimile of it. And I guess you know, going back to my childhood, like I said, I liked everything. Right. Um, at some point later on, you know, we develop our biases and. You know, I'll admit, you know, I probably became this or that kind of snob at one time or another, blues snob, jazz snob, this or that. But eventually I I got back to the way of thinking I had as a child that, like, it's all good. You know, it's it's all valid. Um, And you can't dismiss blues as you know some simple music and you can't miss country music as some simple music um if one were to to do that you've missed the point entirely right exactly um so yes an, an open mind and and you can't get there from here 
unless you've done that homework and unless you've dug deep into them, unless you've listened to those blues records, unless you've absorbed those jazz records, unless you've really dug deep into the country records, unless you've understood what the power and majesty of rock is, is really about. Right. Um, and where it came from. Right. Exactly. Know? Uh, and that, you know, Chuck Berry was really heavy. Yeah. You know, um, he was into some weird stuff, if we're honest, but that's all right. <laughs> well, we're going another direction. <laughs> uh, you know what I see, what's interesting at this point in time is that, you know, the access to information and to to research the roots of music. I mean, we're in the absolute heyday. I mean, you can... I mean, remember back when you'd get like a guitar player magazine back in the day and you'd be some new guy that you really were into and he would name some influences and you're like, who the hell's that? And unless you were like a real ardent, like, you know, let's look it up in a rear, you know, strange catalog and be able to send away for these records. If you weren't that kind of person, you just waited to the chance where you would happen upon it in your local cool record store. But nowadays, literally, you know, I was reading this old, this, uh, semi-recent uh, Django Reinhardt book. And it was like, well, Django was into, you know, listen to this guy and listen to this guy. And his first record he made was that you can literally go on YouTube and hear all of that stuff. And, and the, you will leave with, you know, someone has either posted the, um, uh, just the audio, or you can actually see video, whatever video exists of people playing it or other people playing the stuff. It's an absolutely uh, crazy time, but it's still, it's, it amazes me how, uh, unadventurous people are. That's why I always, you know, when people <laughs> I'm online and people ask the same questions over and over again, I'll say, you know, if only there was a device that we had in our hands <laughs> that we could have access to all the knowledge that's ever been currently available in one. Place. <laughs> but it could, uh, be, it could be argued that it's too easy now. Well, you still got to put the time in, though. You know, it's and that's what people don't. I don't think thoroughly realize is that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, one of the things I think is a lot of fun is that, you know, there'll be stuff in my mind that's been stockpiled. Like, man, one of these days I really want to learn that. But I'll sit down with the record and I can't quite hear it right. And I'm like, eh, I don't want to slow it down. I just, you know, so I'll have these little things in my mind. And nowadays I'll just be like, I wonder if there's a transcription for that. You know what I mean? And then I'll just <laughs> I'll just see the transcription and I'll go, oh, I that's weird, you know. And then at least the learning of it, the sitting down is gone and then you just digest it. And then of course I, I won't play it the same way twice anyway, but uh, <laughs> it's fun to be able to at least have that, that immense amount of time that we used to sit down just trying to figure out the notes through the weird fidelity or whatever technology we had, especially mm -hmm. records back in the day, that was a nightmare. Uh, but anyways, I digress. But yeah, there, yeah I, you know, I, I wax a little wax a little nostalgic about that those times actually you know when when the only thing you could do was drop the needle yes um I learned an awful lot by dropping the needle as did I um, for sure you know, playing the records and and sometimes resorting to taking the reel to reel recorder recording the record and halving the speed right if, if you were more resourceful and I was like that ah. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> no, I actually, you know, at one point, uh, Jocko's punk jazz, his, oh, yeah. his song punk jazz, uh, you know, which is just notes flying by, um, very abstract sounding at first listening. Right. And uh, I, I heard that and I went, I got to understand what's going on here. Um. And it was just flying by too fast for me to hear. Sure. Um, and and that was still in the time when I when it was LPs and tape recorders for me. So that's that's one of them that I slowed down half speed to to learn note note for note. And it was man, it was a bear. I'm telling you. But um, I went. I, I I have to I have to find out what he's doing here. Sure. I get um, it. Yeah. And uh, you know. That, that's one for bass players I'd, I'd recommend. Learn that one. Wow. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. Indeed. Well, listen, we've taken enough of your time here. I appreciate all the stories. I'm looking forward to, 
we were supposed to be down there in Austin. Yes, it was on my calendar. Yes, I've, I always refer to you, you say that Jennifer Warrens is living in your back room. I go, you mean she's in my room? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, my, my back apartment has been the uh, away home for the uh, Cock Marshall Trio on a, on a few occasions. Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, and once Jennifer uh, finds a house to buy, it, it will be open again and, and hold out its welcoming uh, arms to uh, Excellent. once we can get back to uh, normal things and yeah, I'm sorry I didn't uh, embellish anything about the Rolling Stones story, but perhaps another time. Yes, another installment we can tell that tale. <laughs> there are many other stories, believe me. Oh, and, and I know. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. Pleasure seeing you as always, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon in person when this pestilence subsides. Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to that day, you know. Um, it's it's hard for me to warm up to the, to this idea of, of playing with people remotely. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, cause it's about the camaraderie right. of, of, of musical expression with your mates. Right. Um, getting in a room and, and, uh, and making music together. And I've been asked a few times now to, to do online things and I, I just can't quite warm up to it. Yeah. Uh, even though technically it's not that much different from doing what a lot of us are doing now, which is uh, contributing parts for a recording from home. Uh, actually, what I'm doing right now in my spare time is I'm trying to finish up producing a record. Um, and that means either, you know, adding whatever I, I can add here on my own or importing uh, sessions from other people, you know, sending out tracks and getting, getting back tracks. And, and in a sense, it's, that's a little disconnected as would be, you know, playing from multiple locations via zoom or, or something else. Right. But, uh, I, I guess it's what we know. And, right. uh, you know, what I know is working with people in, in the same vicinity and recording either together or remotely. I mean, that makes still makes sense to me, but it's, it's a difficult time. It's going to be a, a, a difficult year not playing live because I, I don't anticipate I'll, I'll play a live gig this year. Yeah, uh, it's weird. I mean, I, I've got called for a few different things locally uh, that might transpire because they're outdoors. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, certainly my European tour for the fall is off. So, right. Uh, yeah. The, weird. Eric, the Eric Johnson tour, you know, just, we just crashed. Um, we were, we were out there touring, I guess it was mid, almost mid March. Um, and we were in Florida uh, and, uh, had just arrived in Jocko's hometown of Fort Lauderdale. Right. Uh, to play there that evening, and we're informed that the state had just shut down right. uh, all concerts. And um, we hired two bus drivers and deadheaded uh, from from Florida back to Austin. And basically, I've been in quarantine ever since. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, there was uh, immediately after there was there was talk about rebooking the tour for August, and ultimately it it was decided right. even that's too risky. Exactly. It's not so um, it's, it's sad that way because of course, as musicians, I mean, playing live is what we do. It's, this it's, is true. It's what we do. Uh, so it's, it's an unusual year and, and, a, and a tough year in, yeah. in that way. But like yourself, I see you online a lot, yeah. you know, playing, playing with your son and, and doing yeah. what you do. So we, we do a, what we can do. And, and, uh, fortunately for me, I, I had a, a production project uh, about halfway through, uh, with a gal I worked with, with Leonard Cohen named Hattie Webb, uh, right. she was one of the singers with Leonard and, and later with Tom Petty did all of his last dates before he passed away. Very talented individual. And we had a record, uh, about half finished and, and I can use this time to, to try to finish it up, uh, which is good. I can remain productive, but, um, 
I miss playing. I, yeah. I, I, I miss the camaraderie of our friends and, and the community we have. And, um, like you, I, I, I can't wait for this pestilence to end so we can, <laughs> we can get back to the lives we, we once knew. Exactly. Yes. I can dig it. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, it's been a gas talking with you, Greg. And Likewise, uh, my friend, and hope this, to see you soon. You punch. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I know you've got this, uh, this guy who plays the bass with his left hand. Yes. Rather amazingly, I must say. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, if you, if you ever need uh, an old school four stringer, you know who to call. Oh, I certainly do. Absolutely, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> All right, take care. We'll see you soon. Okay, Gregory. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.